0: You're listening to 1881 powered by the American Hereford Association and part of the Hereford Network. Here's your host, Shane Bedwell. Welcome back to another exciting episode of 1881. This is Shane Bedwell, your host of the American Hereford Association podcast, and uh, certainly appreciate all of our great listeners and the folks that have joined us Uh to this point, uh, be sure and share uh, 1881 with your friends and uh, fellow breeders across the U.S. and world. I know we've had a lot of folks uh, listen in um, from uh, the United States and uh, also uh, some, some other countries as well. And so we're excited to keep bringing you content uh, for 1881. It's been a blast with the folks that we've had on uh, throughout this year. And uh, our episode today is uh, certainly a very exciting one. And so uh, with no further ado, the segment title today is On the Block with Colonel Mr. Jim Birdwell. Welcome. Well, uh, thank you,
1: Shane. It's certainly my pleasure to be a part of this. And I've listened to a couple of them that you have done and very uh, 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 good information. And it's information that we as Herford breeders like to hear, and we like to hear, uh, things that, uh, have motivated other people and the way they do things and pick up some tidbits here and there that can help us in our own operations. And it's certainly my pleasure to share whatever you might want me to, uh, this morning with anybody that might be
0: listening. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, certainly appreciate you willing to do this. And, uh, I know, uh, taking time out of your, your schedule, Um, which we'll get to, uh, how that schedule's kind of changed, um, from what it was, uh, that you knew for a long time to, uh, what you're doing now. Um, but, um, certainly is a pleasure to have, uh, uh, Jim Birdwell on with us today. He is a, uh, 2021 Hereford Hall of Merit inductee. And, uh, I would say folks, a legend, uh, in the auction business and, um, you know, uh, the command, uh, that he had for uh, several decades, um, in the purebred business, um, seed stock business, of selling and merchandising cattle across this great country has been second to none. And so it's, uh, it's, it's great to have him on here. Um, and, uh, a, a breeder, uh, at heart as well. That's Still. doing uh, great things for the, uh, for the breed, uh, here today that we'll get to. And so Jim, let's, um, Let's maybe jump in and, and talk a little bit just about the beginning and, uh, some of your personal background of where you grew up and kind of where it all started for you. Well, I, I
1: had a, a, uh, period of time growing up in Southwest Oklahoma that, uh, I would know a lot of people, uh, that were in the Hereford business. We were, I grew up in Comanche County and there were. Uh, some really strong Hereford breeders in Comanche County, Oklahoma, and uh, as I, I grew up, uh, we had commercial cattle, uh, not on a large scale. Um, my mother taught school, and my dad worked at uh, various jobs uh, to help support uh, the uh, uh, cattle operation and uh, over the years land was uh, we seemed we thought it was expensive, but it's not. <laughs> compared to what it is now, you know? And so we didn't expand much. We just tried to hang on to what we had, but we always used Hereford bulls. My dad liked Hereford cattle. And that was uh, probably my first introduction to Hereford's, uh, was through the bulls that he bought to use on our cows. And then, uh, I was in the ag program and, uh, Hereford breed at that time was very prevalent in the beef industry. And, uh, we had those really strong breeders in Comanche County and they had children and they always had those good Hereford steers and heifers that you had to show against, you know? And so, uh, the, it was very competitive and all, I always wanted to show good Hereford cattle. That was, that's what I grew up wanting to do, mm-hmm. but I never had the money to buy the good ones. Yeah. And, uh, my dad always, uh, I worked, I saved my money. And my dad never, uh, he gave me every opportunity except the money. I had to buy them with my own money. And, uh, when you have a couple of hundred dollars or $250 to spend, it's pretty hard to find that good Hereford steer. Yeah. And I'll never forget. And I'll just tell this story. It's kind of humorous. Herschel Boydston, many of you that have been in Hereford, been this long time. Remember Herschel Boydston. He was uh, teaching at uh, Cameron university. They had a herd of Hereford cows. And my ag, I told my ag teacher I wanted a Hereford steer, and so they, uh, he found me one there, and we went down to see Herschel, and he was, he is a good Hereford steer, and I wanted him so bad, and Herschel had him priced at four hundred dollars, and I had two hundred, and so I never did get to buy that steer, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I took that two hundred dollars and I bought Chester White gilt, I'll be, and uh, <laughs> and so put me in the hog business, and that was my main. uh, project through high school was the chester white hogs and i had some good ones i had the champion and reserve champion gilts at the oklahoma swine breeder sale in kingfisher one time and uh, they sold one of them brought 162.50 and the champion brought 165 dollars i thought i was rich <laughs> and uh, so anyway that kind of is how i got started and as time went along uh, of course uh, i went through the ag uh, program and went to OSU and uh, was on the judging team there at OSU and uh, Dr. Don Penny. Well, Jack McCroskey started us, then Dr. Don Penny came and uh, and uh, Dusty Rich was a graduate assistant at that time. Is that and, right? Uh, so. Yeah, and so uh, Dusty and I go- went back a long way, and we won. Uh, we won Denver. We won Fort Worth. We uh, I was high individual and. In, in cattle at, uh, uh, Kansas city and we didn't win Kansas city, Kansas state beat us, uh, went on to Chicago and I think we were sixth at Chicago, but, uh, yep. that was a great experience for me. I gave reasons to Joe Lewis, right? Alpha lawn farms. Yep. And I, I, talked to 49 on a set of Hereford bulls to uh, Joe Lewis. And I, I'll always remember that I could talk that class today <laughs> if you, if you asked me to do it. So it was a good experience, and that's kind of how I grew up. I went to OSU. I got a degree in, uh, uh, to teach vocational agriculture. Was employed by Union City Schools in, in Oklahoma, there west of Oklahoma City. I taught four years and got a chance to interview for a job with the American Fold Hereford Association uh, through Ed Meacham. It was a kind of a contact deal. I baled hay in high school for a guy by the name of Jack Ritchie. He went on and got his doctorate degree from OSU and was the head of the education and research had your job, uh, when they first started that program there at the polar for association. And when the Philman, uh, job came open, uh, Jack Ritchie put my name in the pot and he knew me from balen hay. Yeah. And so, uh, they hired me and that's how my career started with the, uh, pole herford association i traveled oklahoma and kansas and uh from that uh you know launched into the the uh, auction business
0: yeah so how long then uh, did you work for the the polled association then jim i worked uh four and a half years okay uh for the pole herford association yep and so and, that uh, would have been uh what what time uh
1: oh i started in 1972 okay i started january of 72 and, uh, they sent me to Denver Yeah, and, uh, we, uh, that's when we were first beginning to scan bulls for ribeye and, and back fat. We had that old scanner that you had to run off all, and it was like 30 below in Denver. We had to heat the oil up in order to get that thing to work to, so we could scan those bulls and uh, Ed Meacham had come up to me. Don't you wish you was in there in that ag room teaching school? (laughs) Because it was, it was really cold, but, uh, that's, that's kind of where I started.
0: Yeah. So, uh, any, uh, maybe share some memories then, um, about what, uh, the association, uh, where we were at in that time, uh, cattle wise, Jim, I mean, for some of our younger listeners, uh, what the breeders were kind of focused on what we were working on.
1: Yeah, uh, the, that was in the, the time that uh, cattle were making a real change in frame score, and everybody was wanting them bigger and better. And Can-Am Investor at that, was national champion the year before I went to work, I think. Uh, uh, and to look back now, Can-Am Investor was a small bull compared to what we went through. But at that time, he was. everybody talked about how big Can-Am Investor was. But as time went along, the national champions were bigger bulls and, uh, people tried to breed them bigger and it took, uh, more than one generation to get them, uh, a, a bigger. And it, it was a, uh, a thing that people were searching out those big frame bulls and they found them, uh, as time went along and the genetics changed and, uh, they went from the very smallest to probably too big. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I was involved in all of that in that period of time It changed pretty fast. Once it started, it, it started changing pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course the exotic breeds were making an introduction into the beef cattle business. And that, that spurred, uh, Hereford breeders along to make, uh, those changes faster than they probably would have otherwise. Yeah,
0: Just to keep up with the market share, um, and and keep that, uh, keep that stronghold. And so. You know, you're running up and down the road, um, you know, working for the association, uh, ring and sales. And so what what made you want to make that transition or what was your inspiration to become an auctioneer?
1: Well, you know, I didn't start out to be an auctioneer. Uh, but I got involved with the uh, purebred uh uh sales and learned to work the ring and uh uh, Jewett Fulkerson and, and Wes Hayes and, uh, race and, uh, ham Hamilton and Bo swilly and Eddie Sims. Those were some guys that were pretty prominent in the auction business that I got to work the ring with. And they, uh, you can't be around those guys without being inspired to be a marketer of some kind. Right. And, uh, I, I traveled some with Eddie, of course, he sold a lot of sales in the Midwest and I traveled some with him to those sales in Kansas, and Oklahoma, we had lots of good discussions and, and, uh, he was needing some help. And, uh, so I went to work for him and, uh, let me think, uh, 75, I believe it was. And, uh, worked for him three years in the sale management thing. And from that, uh, I got interested in the auction business and I sat on the block. I wrote tickets. I studied the auction business and, uh, as time went along, well, uh, Eddie would put me up and let me sell some of those, uh, tail end cows on some of those bigger dispersions and things, you know? And so I kind of got my feet wet doing that. And, uh, it, uh, I, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I decided I wanted to be an auctioneer. And so in 1978, uh, I went into the auction business on my own and, uh, uh, Sam Wells was field man in Texas at that time. And, He and I were good friends. And I told Sam, I said, Sam, I'm going to go into the auction business. And he kind of laughed and and looked at me and he says, well, he says, I can tell you this. You need two years uh, of uh, savings uh, in order to make it in the auction business. Well, he was wrong. It wasn't two years. It was about five years. (laughs) And so, so it was hard uh, to get into the auction business, hard to get in that purebred auction business. And so at, over a period of time, uh, people hired me, uh, that knew me and I just ran a little third of a page ad, uh, in the, uh, polar for world at that time, just one column. That's all I could afford. I told people I was going in the auction business, and I had choice dates available because I had them all, <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> there were some people that wanted certain dates and they, they knew me, they called me and I sold sales for them and then got involved with some other, uh, uh, sale managers that, uh, used outside auctioneers and Jim Reed was one of them, Midwest cattle services. And Jim hired me on several of their sales and gave me an opportunity to, to learn the business better and to know more people and to, uh, get those kind of things under your belt. So that, uh, when the time presented itself, that you were ready to go into the auction business, uh, really on a, a much better scale than you, you would have had you not had that experience and I I never did go to auction school I should have because I would have learned things some things a whole lot faster but I had to kind of learn them the hard way but the lessons took pretty well and so yeah uh, as time went along uh, uh, people hired me and my business grew and uh, uh, it, it was a it was a great career
0: yeah and so Just thinking back, uh, and make sure I I get this right, uh, 42, three years of auction business then, uh, calling uh, calling bids then? I quit.
1: Yeah. Uh, I went in the auction business on my own in 1978. I had sold a little bit, uh, before that time, just some sales here and there, but actually on my own, I went in the business in 1978 and uh I retired in the fall of 2019 so whatever that whatever that is right uh, that's how many years I was in the auction it yeah,
0: on my own yep so you know as you think back, you know what what was the in your opinion Jim, the kind of the breakthrough moment that um you know you were doing some sales, but what what was the the auction you think that really? catapulted, uh, or the breeder that took a chance on you, um, that, that really got you noticed, uh, within the industry.
1: Well, uh, of course, when I went into the auction business, the only real people that I knew in the purebred business that were having sales were Polarford breeders. And so as a result, most of my sales were Polarford sales and people like Gail and Nellie Higgins, probably. A lot of people won't recognize that name, but he was one of the first breeders to call me in Missouri and say, I want that Saturday after Thanksgiving. Can you do that? Yes, sir. I can. I'll be there. <laughs> and then as time went along, uh, some other sales, another, uh, guy that really helped me a lot was Glenn Kleppenstein, Glenn Kirk farms. Yeah. He, he continued. I was selling on that, uh, sale, uh, before I went into the auction business on my own. And when I went on, my own, I called Glenn. I said, Glenn, I'm going into the auction business on my own. Do you want me to continue to come to Glenkirk Kirk Farms? He said, by all means. And so he hired me and used me. And, and uh, so he was a polar for breeder that was very instrumental. Uh, and I'll say Jim Reed was also one. He used me on several sales. He didn't have to, uh, but used me as a second auctioneer sometimes, but, uh, he helped me very much in my auction business. And I could name a lot of other breeders. And if I started naming everybody, I'd leave somebody out, but they're dear friends, you know, Mm -hmm. but the one, the one thing that really propelled me into the auction business, and uh, I don't mean to bore people, but it's kind of a, a story. And I think it's a, in my career, it's a fascinating story. My wife and I were getting ready to go watch Joel play a basketball game one February night. We were running a little bit late. And so I, we were just going out the door and the telephone rang. Well, I always answered the telephone because I thought it might be a sale. And so I stopped and I told her, I said, go ahead and get in the car. I'm going to answer this, just see what it is. Well, I answered it and come to find out it was Jim Leachman and Jim Leachman called me and I visited with him for a period of time. My wife came back in the house, had her hands on her hips. We're going to be late for this ball game. And I said, just a minute, just a minute. This is really important. And so Jim Leachman hired me along with, uh, uh, uh Bruce Brooks and Bruce Miller were uh, three new auctioneers and Kurt Rogers was the main auctioneer already selling on Leachman's sale. Well, We went up there that year and, uh, uh sold on the world's largest one brand bull sale of all breeds. And that's the one auction that exposed me to an industry that I had no idea of how many people were involved in, how many bulls were being sold or anything like that, and it, it just broadened my horizons. It, it gave me a knowledge of a different, uh, perspective on cattle breeding and the things that were really important in the cattle business. I was able to sell bulls to the, the largest commercial breeders in America through that sale. I saw what they bought. I saw what they wanted. And of course we had the bull roll and, uh, those guys were aggressive and they'd get the bid and they'd roll eight or 10 or 20 bulls, you know, and it, it was a fascinating time in the business. And we sold up to 1500 bulls there in two days. And, uh, it That's was amazing. It, it was a great time. Yeah, it is. And, and I, I wish Jim Leachman would write a book uh, that would chronicle all those things. And I've told him that more than once, but, uh, very knowledgeable man. And he was very good to me, hired me on some red Angus sales and some other sales that they managed. They did. And so that propelled propelled me into a, an auction business that I had no idea existed, uh, uh until that
0: time. And that would have been what in the early nineties then Jim? Uh, no, that 80s? would be,
1: uh, uh, yeah. In middle, middle to late 80s. okay Yeah. Okay. Along in there. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. And they, they had some horses too.
1: Oh yeah. Had horses and, uh, did sales for them, The hairpin, uh, uh cavy of horses and, uh, we did those horse sales and I bought us, I was always involved in the horse business and, uh, out of that very first sale, I bought a stud horse called hairpin sure is blue. Gave a lot of money for him. He was my ideal stallion. I used that horse. Had, I bought him when he was a two-year-old, and I sold him to uh, TNS in Cottonwood Falls when he was 20. Mm. And so I <laughs> used that horse all that period of time. He left me some great mares.
0: Yeah. If you haven't had a chance to to head down to uh, to Jim's uh, ranch there, uh, I would tell you he he almost likes maybe breeding quarter horses just as much as he does her for cattle. And, uh He's got a great set of broodmares to, to go through and, and look at and a, and a very, very astute uh, breeder of horses. So Jim, I, that, uh, I don't know how long you've been breeding those horses along with your Hereford cattle, but, um, uh, you know, that, uh, you, you can definitely see the passion and the enthusiasm in your, uh, well, your I, horse breeding. Yeah.
1: I just got an award for the AQHA this year for 40 years of continuous breeding for um,
0: quarter horses, So been in it a while. There you go. (laughs) Right. So, you know, the auction business has changed, uh, you know, in your, your 40 year career of, uh, you know, selling your retired now, but, uh, maybe kind of walk the listeners through just some of those, uh, times, you know, obviously, um, talking about phones in the house to, phones in the vehicle to cell phones, but, uh, bigger than that, what, what's changed, uh, kind of some big hallmark moments of your auction career kind of changed the the cattle marketing side of it.
1: Well, uh, I won't say that I'm responsible for it, but, uh, it was a method of selling that I always really liked. And, uh, I thought Ray Sims was a great Uh, auctioneer in more ways than one and Ray uh, never spent much time talking about the cattle Uh, you know he'd say a few comments about them if he needed to but uh, he would sell cattle and he was hired on lots of larger sales and dispersions and if you wanted them sold and sold at a a rapid pace Ray Sims was the man to do it I always liked that I liked uh, George Morris's flair in the auction business his his demeanor, uh, I was never able to duplicate that. And, but you know, if, if I wanted to be a, a flashy, uh, auctioneer, George Morris would be your guide to, to, uh, pattern yourself faster. Uh, Eddie, uh, had a, a way of going that, uh, kind of transitioned from the older way of the slow, uh, speech four or five or six speeches on a set of cattle. Eddie kind of transitioned into the Hereford thing. Uh, a faster method of selling and uh, i like that and so i'd say that's one thing the speed of selling cattle has increased uh the last few years to uh, uh about the same that everybody does it about the same some people do it better than others but uh and some some cattle need more said about them mm-hmm. uh in certain places than than uh, uh particularly a bull sale of all one breeding And your crowd's there to buy bulls, and they've got other things to do. And so they want you to sell those bulls to them. They've got them picked out. They know which ones they're going to buy. So they want to get them in there and get them out and see if they can get them bought. And they want to get their load of bulls bought and go on about their business. And so that's that's one of the biggest things I've seen. Also, uh, uh, in the last few years, the online bidding was something that everybody was apprehensive about. And I think uh, Superior probably uh, by selling on video, the commercial cattle on video, people became more uh, accustomed to buying cattle on the video, and so the online sales, uh, people were more accustomed to seeing them online, and that's grown to a. Uh, uh, and and I know during the period of time that that uh, COVID uh, kind of had the crowds really. Uh, it's small in number had it not been for the online sales. I don't know what we would have done on many sale days without having all those online breeders. And so that's, that's a part of the business that has grown. Uh, there's always been order buyers. There's always been consultants buying for other people, but it's still the, the auction method, uh, people there buying right out of that ring, seeing their neighbors buy, and being caught up in the, the, uh, action of the auction. And the enthusiasm that's there, uh, to me, there's no better way to find fair appraised value for a set of animals than the auction way. And I, I believe in it and, uh, there's lots of different facets to it nowadays, but still the best way I think is to be there and to, uh, to be a part of it. Yeah.
0: It, there's nothing better. And, and, uh, thankfully I've got to witness you several times at an auction, um, uh, you know, work, um, you know, your natural gift. And, uh, that is, uh, inspiring a crowd, motivating a crowd and getting everybody working in the same direction. And that, uh, that took talent, um, and it took years of experience to, to figure out, uh, how to do that. But you were a master at it, Jim, and and how you can, how you, how you move those commercial cattlemen. And I think it, it, it says a lot about your background growing up and what you, uh, what you thought people would like and, uh, the, the demand in cattle and, and, having a good eye. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that and you're kind when you say that there's, there's lots of good auctioneers and, uh, you know, it, it was always, uh, I, I never did a sale. I didn't want to do, you know, and I look forward to it every time. And, uh, that was a, that was a motivation factor for me to motivate other people and to uh have them in, and you know they had to trust you to uh to bid uh that fast and uh you know it it was just a something that w- all of the facets of the auction uh, g- come into play uh during that period of time that you're selling something so it all has to mash together uh to to get uh, accomplish the goal that you want to accomplish and that's to get the most money you can for Whatever you're selling and whoever you're selling for. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So kind of kind of looking at it from the other way, Jim. As you have you step back and look at your career, what what can Hereford breeders, what can seed stock breeders do to better market their cattle in preparation uh, leading up to that sale? You know, you you've done thousands. I I don't know if you know the number of sales and auctions that you've you commanded if you kept track of that along the way or not, but, uh, um, it it would be several thousand. Um, what, what are some tips that you you could give some of our seed stock producers, um, and, and how they could better prepare and have success on sale day?
1: Well, um, first of all, there's no magic bullet. Uh, you know, if there was one thing, you could do to make them all worth X amount of dollars everybody would be doing, Yeah. It. but, uh, everybody does it a little bit different. Uh, uh, I kept, uh, a ledger. Uh, in fact, I've got two ledger books full of sales that from the very first sale I did to the very last sale I did, I've never counted them. I never went back and counted. I've never added up how many dollars worth of livestock I've sold. Uh, but. Uh, it, it would be astounding yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, when, when you get down to it, but uh, it, it was a, an amazing time. And, and everybody had a little different way of doing things, but you know, you, you got to do the basic things. Uh, you've got to have your cattle in a condition that they can be sold. You've got to have the breeding dates. You need to know the sires of the calves. They need to be tattooed you know, those fundamental things that everybody, every good cattleman does, those things need to be done so that people, if, if you're up there and you're floundering around trying to figure out what this cow's bred to or which uh, bull the calf is sired by, and you're having to look through your cabin book to figure that out. People don't, they don't trust the rest of your records. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a, got that mistake somewhere, uh, you know, you, and, uh, you need good pictures. I think you need an attractive catalog. I think you need to do, uh, uh, an ample amount of advertising, uh, of whatever you, you can afford. Uh, and I would do it in color. Uh, you know, all of those things just enhance the value of an animal. And, uh, of course the old saying is uh, a registered cow is worth what she'll bring at the sale barn, what she weighs which is true, plus what you can get for. And there's lots of ways to get more for her. And it's pedigree. It's uh, performance information. Uh, it's, it's weighing those calves at birth. It's being able to have a uh, total herd performance information on those cows, where they rank, and uh, so that those numbers will mean something. And when you get ready to sell them, People can look at those and see those high accuracy values on those females and those cattle you're selling. And believe you and me, people are looking at those numbers, whether that's their only criteria or not, that's up to them. Mm-hmm. But people are looking at the, that performance information, those numbers. And I don't think you would be able to sell a herd bull anymore uh, nowadays without having those kind of, of uh, uh, EPDs the performance information, the DNA, all of that homozygous polled, you know, and, and the pole breed is a big thing. Uh, pigment is a big thing. So, you know, those things that help you market those cattle, uh, you, you got to do them, uh, whether you believe in them or not, uh, you will, uh, when you get through with uh, uh, marketing, a set of cattle, you will at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, And I, I think, uh, just talking to a few of the breeders, uh, that uh, track that stuff pretty closely, whether that be uh, homozygous bold or the fact that they had uh, double red eyes and, and pigment, or they were top 10% for cavities or top 10% for growth. They can tell you within the hundreds of dollars how much that actually means to their bottom line. And I'm sure it would have been interesting, uh, Jim, for you to track those different things over your lifetime of auctioneering because I'm sure there was some different waves, um, you know, as we went through the, the late 70s and through the 80s and 90s, what what actually paid and, and what maybe didn't at the time that is paying today. So, um, you know, keeping track of that and studying that lesson each and every sale and breaking it out like that, I think, is a, is a real value to folks.
1: Yeah, I do too. And, uh, you know, as, as time goes along, I can remember back in the R.W. Jones days, he was a performance breeder in Georgia. And there was a lot of performance breeders in Georgia, and he, he bred uh, uh, by the numbers. And some of those R.W. Jones cattle, uh, maybe they had scurs. Maybe they had white in their back. Maybe they had white up on too much of, of their legs, uh, you know, or, or, or all of that. But he bred by the numbers. Well, there are, there are things now. We have cattle now that you can select them by numbers, but you can still get all of those phenotypically things that we all like. You can find cattle that have numbers and that you have the phenotype that you want and and all of that. And I think, I think we're progressing. I think the breeders have done an outstanding job just in the, I'll say the last uh, 10 years of really beginning to recognize how much performance means uh, to a set of cattle that will phenotypically Uh, be pleasing to our eyes. Our eyes are all trained for certain kind of cattle and all of that, but we're getting there and, uh, we're getting there pretty quick, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great transition to kind of move into your, you know, your personal ranch and, um, you know, a little bit about, uh, Birdwell Ranch and what you guys have been able to do. And so, you know, at the time you're auctioneering, you're, you're, uh, You know, I'm not for sure when you would have first acquired your first registered cows, Jim, but, uh, let's maybe kind of start with that. And what, what allowed you to build your operation with your family here today?
1: Well, I think the easiest way to start is I kind of backed into the registered, uh, poole business. And I say backed into it. I, uh, when I was working for the association, uh, I didn't have any registered cattle. Uh, and, uh, didn't particularly want any, uh, I was gone a lot. And so I ran, uh, uh feeder steers, uh, on wheat pasture. And, uh, I, I'd be able to rent that wheat pasture, get a set of calves straightened out, take them to the wheat pasture. And the guy that i rent it from would look after the cattle and all of that. And I'd pay him X amount of dollars, uh, when we'd weigh those cattle off a of wheat pasture, you know, for caring for them and yep. And it worked out great because I was off in Kansas somewhere or, or gone. I didn't have time to look after him, so it was all working great until 1973. And there was a, a beef price was going up in the grocery market, and consumers were hollering about it. And the president put a, a price freeze on on uh, uh, beef cattle, and of course, everything that or beef in the soup and everything you could read was the beef price was going to go up. Well, I had a set of steers turned out. I'd got them out of Rayquard, Georgia, and they had just a touch of ear in them. black baldies, good set of steers doing great on wheat pasture. I had them down at Chattanooga on a, uh, some really good pasture. And the guy was looking after them for me. Well, I could have sold them. I paid, I paid, uh, uh, 70, uh, right at 70 cents for those set of steers. I could have sold them in uh February coming off of wheat and they were weighing about seven hundred, uh, seven fifty. I could have sold them for fifty-eight cents. Well, I figured that up. That didn't pencil out very well. Yeah. And I thought the heck with this, I'm not selling those things. I've got grass. I'm just gonna grass those things. So I grassed them through till October. And with the beef price freeze and everything, and of course the the beef market just plummeted in 1973, and I took 38 cents for those cattle weighing nine. Oh my! And and so I walked them up that chute, and there was a farm or two went with them as they got into that truck. So that put me out of the steer business. And thank the Lord, I had a really good banker, and I went to him and I said, man, I said. This is all the money that's left out of those steers. He kind of laughed. He said, well, that's not much, is it? And I said, no, it's sure not. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I said, I think somewhere down the line that uh, the cow-calf thing might suit me just a little better. That way I could have some equity because all of my equity that I'd made over the years was gone, and I had nothing to show for it. And so I knew Gus Hendergarth at Ransom, Kansas. He had a nice cow herd and he wanted to sell his heifer calf crop, registered polar heifers. So I bought that calf crop from him, gave him $250 a head with the paper. I'll be darn. And that was a lot of money at that time. Yeah. And so I bought that potload of heifers. I kept them. And, uh, that's where I started in the registered polar business. And over the years, the only females that we have bought since that particular time were females that Joel showed and, uh, his show heifers, but the rest of the time we kept those cattle. That was the base of my cow herd and I bought bulls and I, I used bulls, uh, from different breeders and kept those heifers. And so, uh, over a period of years since 1973, uh, we have just added to that cow herd from bulls that we have bought and kept their daughters and some bulls we'd use them as long as we could use them Then we had to change bulls. Then we started AIing, and, uh, and we were able to use those outside, uh, great bulls and, uh, get them incorporated. So we had daughters of them and we didn't, we made mistakes along the way. Don't get me wrong. We made some mistakes that we had to correct and, but it didn't take us long to recognize those mistakes. I bought a bull one time, very well pedigreed bull. Well, these calves weighed way too much for, for my operation. And, uh, so birth weight was a big thing we had to look at because I was gone a lot. That cow had to make a living out in the pasture. She had to have that calf. She had to breed back. And so we concentrated on those things. And over the years, that's really paid off for us, uh, uh, to do it that way. The cattle that we've got are, uh, they're not maintenance free, but they're low maintenance kind of cattle. Sure. And so th- that's kind of where we got started and how we got started.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, over time, uh, mainly just private treaty sales, then, uh, Jim to commercial guys in that area then, or how did you, how did you market those, uh, those cattle?
1: Yeah, well, we kept, uh, we were fortunate enough to, to be able to add some grass along. And so we kept our heifer calf crop. Mm-hmm. We, we hardly ever sold any heifer calves. And just the last few years have we sold heifers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we finally got uh, to a number and we just built into, rather than purchasing more females to go on that grass, we grew into it. And as we grew and able to get a little more grass here and there, uh, we were able to, to grow our cow herd to a point that uh, it, it's big enough to kind of be sustainable, you know, for the grass that we have and to, and, and then we, Uh, Most of the time uh, we didn't try to market any bulls. Uh, We uh, castrated those calves and we sold them as steers. Sometimes we'd run them on uh, wheat. Sometimes we'd run them on uh, uh, our grass, but whatever, we'd sell them at about 750 pounds uh, somewhere in that neighborhood uh, after they were castrated. So that's how, but in recent years uh, we got into marketing some bulls and Uh, do a joint production sale through the heritage hereford sale with uh uh, cindy and and john and and reggie and uh uh, and it's been a good partnership for all of us and we've sold our bulls all of us had like-minded programs and kind of bred cattle alike and so gave people a chance to come and buy uh uh, 70 or 80 or 100 polarford bulls in one spot that were kind of bred similar had numbers and performance information and it's been very successful for all of
0: us. Yeah. That's, uh, that Hereford heritage sales, the 12th, 13th year for that Jim. What? Yeah. Something like that. May I Maybe a I little bit remember. more we've, even.
1: Yeah. Uh, but it's been, it's been good for all of us. Gave us a chance. Uh, and, and we've learned a lot too. uh, to, uh, really, uh, we try to call those bulls really hard, uh, at weaning time and we might take a chance on one that's marginal but we found out come yearling time, he's still marginal, yeah.
0: you know, and so we,
1: we, get, we can make that decision a lot easier now than we could, uh,
0: beforehand. Yeah. And now, you know, the bull sales, uh, you know, going on doing well, you guys have added a female sale along with that, uh, most years in the fall of some kind, whether that's a, a live production sale, uh, in conjunction, uh, with, uh, whatever event it may be, or, uh, you've done that online, uh, with some, um, group consignments, uh, that's, that's worked pretty well as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's given us a place to merchandise
1: some, what we think are some really top females and, uh, and not try to, we personally don't try to sell all that many in numbers, but we try to sell some of our very best ones. Uh, and offer some flushes, some interest and some things like that in those females that other uh, breeders would be interested
0: in. Right. So maybe, uh, Jim, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what you've seen and we covered it a little bit, you know, with the progression over time and kind of some of your key aspects of what allows maybe breeders to have successful sales. And that's with the data, but specifically to your own program and your own breeding philosophy, what do you think's allowed, uh, your operation to flourish here in the last, um, uh, five to 10 years? And, uh, you know, that emphasis and selection pressure that you've had for a long time, what, what, what do you think's really ringing true now with your customers? Well, I think, th- I think they
1: realize that, uh, well, maybe a better way to, to look at it is this, uh, We wanted to be breeders. We wanted to be known as breeders rather than merchandisers. And so we didn't use, uh, some bulls that were popular this year. Uh, we, we bred cattle that we thought were sound. We bred cattle with bulls that we purchased that would put us in a position to leave us a, a great cow herd that, were was very highly accurate in their numbers, uh, a cow herd that were bred similar. Many of our cows are at least half, some three-quarters, some seven-eighths, and now a lot of full sisters uh, in our cow herd. So our cow herd is bred uh, very closely the same. Uh, and so we find a bull that works uh, on one cow uh, this year. He'll work on another cow next year. Uh, see because they're all bred just the same we've we've had herd bulls that the same cows didn't have the really good ones every year maybe they had a heifer calf this year next year they had a bull calf that was outstanding Mm -hmm. or something like that but that bull has worked on the cross section of our cows extremely well and uh you know and not to be self-promoting or anything but uh joel found a bull at uh uh up at uh, in illinois and uh I think everybody knows the validated bull came from Ellis farms and they had bred, uh, cattle with high marbling and, and, uh, some of the fundamentals of this breed that I thought were very important. And he was out of a great cow. Joel found him up there, called me on the phone, said, dad, this is a pretty good bull. You want to try to buy him? We were looking for a herd bull. And I said, just buy him. He had an eight individual marbling in that herd and, uh, and uh, Joe didn't think it would hold. He didn't think that barbling would hold, but we went ahead and bought him. And sure as the world, that bull has been a a uh, an exceptionally fine bull uh, for us. We've saved, we've sold very few daughters of him, and the ones we have sold, there's been some breeders that have uh, uh, wanted them, and uh, so he's given us another dimension in our cow herd that we never had until we got a hold of him. Mm-hmm. And now we're, we've, we've saved lots of daughters of him and now we're moving on, you know, to, uh, other bulls that are working there. That bull validated, uh, I think nine or 10, uh, years old. And so, uh, he can't service cows naturally anymore, but we, we do, uh, have a bank of semen on the bull here at our place.
0: Yeah. Talk about a bull that, uh, can change uh, marbling in one generation that, that eight, uh, IMF scan was absolutely real. And you guys, yes. uh, uh, have been a, a big promoter and a, a big participator in the national reference sire program. And that year that we tested validated out at Olson's, uh, 15 of his progeny, eight of them went prime and seven of them went high choice. And so it's a uh, He's a, he's a one generation changer right away. Um, as far as marbling is concerned.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the bonus in that bull was the ribeye. We, we didn't, we didn't expect him to sire as much ribeye as he sires in a set of cattle. And then the other bonus was he was out of a great revolution Mm daughter. And that cow has evidently, I never have seen her. Joel has seen her. But evidently she has a beautiful udder. She is very fertile. And those females that we've kept out of him are that type, that phenotype. And a lot of them got red eyes or dark red, beautiful udders, nice teats, breed back. They're just good cows. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very good. So, uh, you know, a little bit about your family. You've mentioned, uh, Joel here a few times, but, uh, it's a family operation that, uh, you've, you've been blessed with. Um, you know, uh with your with your wife, uh being on the road so much uh that long, uh, Jim, uh auctioneering and and running cows isn't easy to do. And uh let's talk about your family a little bit. Well, uh, you're right. I've been
1: blessed with a a wonderful wife. And uh we got married in nineteen sixty nine and uh I've traveled ever since we've been married, I, even as an ag teacher for a few years, I traveled quite a bit, you know, going to shows and looking for animals and that kind of stuff. So she was used to me traveling. She was a school teacher. And, uh, when we moved back to Fletcher in 1972, uh, she had a job teaching the uh, first grade here at Fletcher. And, uh, so, uh, uh as our children grew, uh, Jamie, our daughter, she was the oldest, uh, and Joel uh, was our son and he was the youngest. And, uh, as they grew, well, of course they all had a part in, in, uh, helping out when I was gone. And, uh, we had all kinds of things go on when I started, you know, never, nothing, nothing bad ever happened until I, I left and then everything happened. And, but we had good neighbors and, and, uh, and they helped and, Uh, Jeannie was a city girl, but, uh, as time went along, she learned how to drive a feed truck. She learned how to feed cows. She learned how to open gates. And, uh, I won't say that she ever just really loved it, Mm. but, uh, she was glad to help. Yeah. And, uh, then as Joel grew and Jamie grew, well, they took part in it. Joel was feeding cows with feed truck when he was 10 years old, which, uh, I guess some, uh, People would get me for child labor, but, uh, I came in one night and, uh, he was up and it, I was late and I thought, well, what's he doing up? And came in, it was about midnight. He said, dad, I got to show you something. I said, okay. And so he took me out the machine shed. And as he was pulling the feed truck in the machine shed, he had hit one of the center poles and the roof was down on the machine shed. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I didn't say one thing to yeah. him. I thought, well, he's. He's doing the best he can, yeah. but that's how he learned. And, uh, <laughs> that's how they got involved. Just like my dad did me. I mean, I, I was independent. I could do it all when I was his age. Joel could do it. Jamie could do it. Jeannie could do it all of them together. It took us all, yeah, uh, to get things going. Of course, my parents were living at that time and my father, he still liked to come out and, and uh, help when he could. So that helped out a bunch too. hmm
0: mm-hmm. Well, you've had a had a big impact on uh, several people's livelihood, Jim, uh, through uh, through your career as a as an auctioneer, and you know uh, now uh, you know you're retired from that business and and breeding great quarter horses and Hereford cattle and and enjoying life. Uh, you're a man of faith, and um, you know it's certainly uh, great to spend time and visit with you, and I'd encourage. Any of you, if you're ever down in the Fletcher area to stop by and, uh, enjoy, uh, some time, um, with Jim, I know he'd, he'd love showing you the, the stock around the house.
1: Yep. And anybody's welcome. Anytime we're around most of the time anymore. And I'll say this, you know, people ask me, says, well, do you miss the auction minutes? Yeah. You know, you have to miss something like that, but I miss the people miss seeing the people. And uh, but I don't miss the traveling part of it. I love to sell bulls, uh, but I'm I'm that was a part of my life that uh, is in the past now. And uh, uh, God has spared me for a, a a new life, a different kind of life than I've ever had with my family. And uh, it's great to be at home. It's great to be here. It's great to me and my wife do lots of things together now. I can be around my grandkids. And, um, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, rewarding time of life right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, very good, Jim. Any, uh, other comments that you would like to, uh, um, share with, uh, our membership or our listeners, any piece of oh, advice just, that you want to part them with?
1: Uh, I'm not much one to give anybody very much advice. Uh, you know, I've, I've always appreciated the people. Uh, The friendships, and uh, you know, when I uh, I've had people call me since I retired and want to know how I was doing, and just people that I never thought would uh, have called me, and I've appreciated each and every one of them. Uh, I've appreciated the great friendships uh, over the years, and uh, I've always tried to treat uh, people the way I'd like to be treated, and uh, I I think Hereford breeders are some of the best people that you can ever be around, and uh you know uh, i don't know that my advice would be anything uh different than what they're doing but i, I think that they they just need to take advantage of the uh, uh, uh new uh, uh programs that uh enhance the value of what they're doing uh and become a believer in them and uh, breed the kind of cattle that you like and the kind of cattle that are useful there so that other people can use them uh in, in their business and i uh i think everybody knows a good one and and i'm talking about cattle uh everybody knows a good one but uh th- not everybody's eye is the same and it takes different kinds of cattle to meet all the demand uh, that they, that this industry requires in order to make it all fit together and work and i think just just breed for the industry and breed those things that uh, that are profitable that will
0: let you be here ten years from now. Very well said. I uh, thank you for joining us and taking time out of your your busy schedule. And so, annual meetings right around the corner. Go ahead and RSVP for um, our educational forum. We've got a great educational forum planned there on Friday, the twenty first, and then the annual meeting will be here in Kansas City. Uh, as always there on the 22nd during the American Royal and so uh with that uh thank you for listening go ahead and share uh with friends and and folks um uh, and uh we'll we'll be uh on the air here as soon as possible again with another great episode of 1881 thanks for tuning in to the American Hereford Association's podcast 1881 with host Shane Bedwell for more information, visit Herford.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.